Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase, get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Mel Woods, staff writer at Extra Magazine. Hello. Hello. Mel, today we're going to talk about a couple things. Uh, Dave Chappelle has been named editor-in-chief of all Canadian media. The resulting (laughs) takes have been, uh, what's the opposite of illuminating? Grim, bad, real bad. (laughs) Also, Canada's real-life succession is all I want, and I'm not quite getting it from all of this Rogers Family drama. We're going to take a close look. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to everyone by Caitlin Warren, Christopher Hicks, Brian Zura, Asim Nakvi, Daryl Abs, Ryan Downey, Brianne Cote, and Matthias. Hi, my name is Matthias Graham. I'm a settler filmmaker from Regina, Saskatchewan, currently based in Montreal. I support Canadaland because I've been a longtime follower of Ryan McMahon's work, and their partnership with him on Thunder Bay is some of the best reporting I've seen in years. Also, living in Montreal, I really appreciate Canadaland's commitment to French language issues. And finally, long-form podcasts like The White Saviors that consolidate so much incredible reporting, I think shows that Canadaland is more than just media criticism. It's really changing the landscape of Canadian media, and we're all better for that. 
Mel, something terrible has just happened. What is it? Somebody wrote a nice article about Canada Land, and everyone is very upset. Um, <laughs> oh yes, how you're how you're saving the left in Canada. It doesn't even say that. It's very nice. It's like, can, can I just have this? It's not like any Canadian publication will ever write anything nice about Canada Land. This is a big American magazine. And, you know, they said that Canada Land holds power to account. They said that we stepped into the void left by uh, Canada's legacy media. They said that we're doing some of the best investigative reporting in the country. And there's praise in this piece for, like, many great journalists who work here or who have worked here. Positive words about our staff unionizing. I mean, you could not ask for a nicer piece of press. And it's just been awful. People are so upset. (laughs) (laughs) What? What are they upset about? The comments about this piece, and I made the mistake of reading the comments uh, on Twitter. What happened is this. The big American magazine that said these nice things about us happens to be Jacobin, which is a major explicitly socialist magazine. And uh, a lot of people on the uh, the left, I guess the far left in, in Canadian Twitter, self-described socialists, self-described Marxists, self-described radicals, were appalled that we would be situated in this way, that a socialist publication would praise Canada Land as Jacobin did. So I'm going to take a second, if I may, to clear this up. If the complaint is that Canada Land is insufficiently left, insufficiently radical, insufficiently socialist, guilty as charged, that is totally correct. Uh, We make no claims at all to be doing journalism with any kind of explicit partisan agenda or through like the lens of a political ideology. Mel, there are people laughing at that because there's people on the right who think that Canada Land is like the most leftist SJW cultural Marxist, whatever. Like, like the idea that I would say that is a joke to other people, you know? Mm-hmm. I take pride in the fact that neither of those clubs want us. Uh, nothing against those people. And I'm not making any big claim that we're like, oh, we're, the, we're objective. I don't really believe in journalistic objectivity. What I'm saying is that we're independent. And if people out there want to support news media that does journalism as a means to an end, as a means to like a political goal to advance one side of an argument or with a policy goal in mind, don't look at us. We have one core belief that we're working through here. And I don't know if you call it ideology or just an idea or maybe like it's a principle. And that's that we believe in an independent press that The job of a journalist is to serve the facts first, facts over agenda, facts over ownership, facts over allegiance to groups or sides. So we need to deliver our audience the truth as best as we can get it. And we need to be independent to do that. And yes, this is a crowdfunding message that I've hijacked you on this long road to say that independence of the press, uh, it used to be a core tenant of journalism. It's now like just disappearing rapidly. If it's something that listeners out there believe in and want to keep alive, we need them to support us. We're getting there. Please go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. Thank you. So, Mel, you are a staff writer at Extra, which covers LGBTQ two-spirit news. And you wrote a great piece that came out where you, you kind of chart, I think it's a trend. It seems like three different big news organizations have each published pieces kind of like, I, I don't know if it's just a coincidence in the wake of the controversy over Dave Chappelle's special on Netflix and uh, the walkouts at Netflix. According to what you wrote, there are three recent pieces from the Toronto Star, CBC, and CTV that show a worrying trend towards anti-trans narratives. 
Can you take us through those pieces and tell people what you mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is by far the, not the first time that an anti-trans screed has been published in Canadian media. But the fact that we got kind of three of them all in one week uh, should give people reason for pause. I live out here in Vancouver, and so I'm always like three hours behind the news cycle. And so when there's three days of the week that I wake up and there's some sort of trans-exclusionary radical feminist nonsense happening on my Twitter timeline over and over and over again, uh, I think it's something we need to start talking about. And so, you know, the first piece I talk about in my piece uh, is a column from Rosie D'Amano in the Toronto Star. Rosie D'Amano, of course, famous for the Gawker-dubbed worst lead of all time, which I won't repeat here because it's awful. Oh, no, please. Um, you repeat it in your piece. It is yeah, the worst yeah. lead of all time. I mean, it's come on. It's the worst lead of all time. It's it's a story that's about sexual assault involving a doctor, uh, involving a surgical procedure of a woman having her uterus removed. And Rosie D'Amano, always uh, a literary genius, comes up with the phrase, she lost a womb but gained a penis. And I hate it so much. So wow. to see a take from Rosie D'Amano like, why can't we say women anymore, which is essentially the, the headline of her column uh, last week, is not all that surprising. Um, I think what was surprising for a lot of people is to see Margaret Atwood, you know, of The Handmaid's Tale, retweet it and share it. But that wasn't the only article that Margaret Atwood decided to retweet last week. The CBC also had an op-ed out talking about how we should push for trans rights, but all that radical activism needs to stop. And then that was all kind of backed up by a big documentary, quote unquote, investigation by the CTV's London, England correspondent. And I think that's an important thing to remember about this into detransitioners and the plague that's apparently coming for our children. And that was just chock full of a bunch of really dangerous anti-trans narratives. And so to get all three of these pieces in a week at once kind of points to this being normalized in Canadian media as being like legitimate discourse that we should be talking about and like giving weight to these beliefs when many of them are based on disproven theories, science that's not have evidence, you know, the, the specter of the straw man of trans women coming into men's bathrooms and all that stuff. And the fact that these ideas are getting platformed in such a way and getting shared by people like Margaret Atwood is a problem, a, a, a huge problem, not just for trans Canadians, but like for everybody. To take a closer look at these pieces, which is like, you know, what we do here, um, beginning with the Demano piece, the headline, why can't you say woman anymore, which, you know, well, you just did. And then this argument, which I found there's a difference between an argument that you disagree with and an argument that is just false, that is just based on like a faulty premise that isn't substantiated. And Demano is trying to back up this idea that there's some sort of crusade against the word woman. And her evidence, which she has to, like, go back years to find, like, three or four examples. And the examples are, like, largely of, like, what she's she, – it just seems like she is actually misunderstanding something. What I think she's seeing is she's alarmed that in certain environments there's language, like, about people who have a uterus because not everyone who has a uterus is a woman. So in a medical context, there's a practice of using language like that, which I appreciate sounds strange to people who haven't heard it before – and then it seems like she's conflating that with some sort of a crusade to stop people from saying 
woman. And I think the Toronto Star wanted that to be a debate as opposed to just false. And so they published a follow-up by a trans writer, Florence Ashley, who said, you know, you can say woman and we can say person. And no one's saying that you can't say woman. And then they put that on page A14 versus page A3, where DeMano's piece went. And, you know, it didn't go viral as DeMano's piece did. I feel like if I were the editor, and I don't think DeMano has an editor, I would just say, like, this is not a good, we can't publish this because you haven't substantiated your argument. There's really no proof that anyone's trying to stop anybody from saying woman. Exactly. And I think so many of these anti-trans arguments are based on oh, well, people might say this or stop me from doing this. And there's never any proof. It's like trans people just want to live our lives. We just want to be able to like, I don't know, I'm non-binary. I'd love to be able to go get a pap smear and not have to hear the word woman every way, shape or form when I'm doing that. Because that's already an unfortunate experience. Like, I don't want it to be made any more unfortunate. And that's what so many people are simply asking for. And it is not coming at anybody's expense. It is not coming at anybody's impediment. You know, I think a lot of snarky Twitter commenters were very rightfully quick to point out that you used woman right there in the headline. Rest assured, the word woman is not going anywhere. But people are just asking to be properly referred to in a medical context in life. And that is truly just the most basic of rights that we should have. You know, I'm new to this stuff, but like the deeper you get into it, the more you realize that the stakes are quite high because you're talking about with the trans community, people who don't have the same access or outcomes in our medical system. And so the, you know, the use of inclusive language, like actually could be life or death, could matter, could make the difference between somebody seeking help or not. So it's like, on the one hand, you've got like very specific environments that are trying to like achieve really important outcomes. And then you've got this like reflexive reactionary, like, fuck off, I'm not going to use that new term. You can't make me And that's not a debate. Like, those are not equal sides. I get that. I feel the same about the Jessica Triff piece that was published by CBC Opinion, a trans writer who is decrying, you know, I'm all for trans rights, but I decry toxic trans activism. All right. Like, I'm ready to read a lot of different takes. And I read this to read what is this toxic activism of which you speak. It's just not substantiated. The examples are not compelling and there aren't many of them. No, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of people were like, hey, the Jessica Triff piece is good. Look, this is what you were asking for. It's written by a trans woman. And it's like just the same as there are cis women who are opposed to abortion or, you know, gay people who didn't approve of marriage equality. There are trans people with bad opinions about trans rights. And I think the CBC one in particular points to a larger problem of the CBC's opinion section, which I think Nora Loretto pointed out on Twitter quite well, that, you know, There has to be some sense of fact-checking and verification of these people, and it's not just a soapbox for anybody who doesn't have the the rhetorical heft behind what they're saying and the proof and the evidence, because so much of the evidence that she points to in that piece, again, the specter that trans women, or I guess cis men masquerading as trans women are going to invade washrooms and change rooms everywhere, has been disproven time and time and time again. There is like no concrete evidence that that is ever going to be a problem. Using that as your proof, you're advocating that trans women shouldn't have rights and that people who haven't medically transitioned shouldn't be allowed to call themselves trans. And that's wild considering the access of medical transition in this country. It's classist and it's just a bad piece of writing. And you can tell because it's been amended several times since it was published. And I know internally at the CBC, you know, trans and non-binary and queer 
people who work at the CBC are raising a stink about it because it should never have been published. The CBC opinion thing has been a debacle from the start, and it actually predates the CBC opinion section. There's this weird thing at CBC where they can't admit, like, they're always under attack for being too left, which I know, again, people on the left laugh at at that notion. But that is, like, a constant concern of executive producers, a constant concern of management. And so they're always trying to, like, well, how do we balance this out and show that we're not all left without admitting that we're left to begin with? And I remember that years ago, they launched this show called The 180. And they couldn't say, here's our show from the right, because that would say that would be admitting that everything else is from the left, which isn't even true. But it was all in code. So, the, you know, the 180 was out of Alberta and it was hosted by Jim Brown. And, you know, the 180 kind of gestures to like, like it's this is the other side of the story. And the idea was that this was going to be a contrarian show on the CBC hosted by mildly right leaning, I guess, Jim Brown. And the show was always muddy and, and hazy in its intentions and it ultimately failed. And now the secret editor, like you won't find anywhere, I, I don't think where the CBC actually lists him. But the editor of CBC Opinion is, guess who? Jim Brown. Jim Brown, in his infinite wisdom, goes ahead and commissions it and then gets completely pilloried by uh, CBC staffers and appeals to Jessica Triff. I'll read an email that Jim Brown sent to his writer, Jessica Triff. I know I promised no more changes, but my superiors have been spending the day fielding calls and emails from our trans and non-binary staff members and their allies, and I've been asked by them to make a couple more requests of you. The first is to ask if you would mind acknowledging in the piece that violence against trans folks is disproportionately higher than violence against cisgender people. I wouldn't be pestering you except that colleagues are taking this very seriously and we have to be serious in our reaction to that. And Jessica Tripp says, you know, no, fuck off. Uh, This is my opinion piece. And they're radical activists and they're not going to censor me. In in a way, this did more harm than good because it actually lent credibility to the idea, you know, oh, now now I'm being censored here, uh, which is not actually what happened. But it's a big mess. It's such a huge mess. And it's something that I point in my piece to the Trans Journalist Association style guide. And I'm a member of that association. They formed just within the last couple of years here, and they do some really good work. But this style guide that they've made is the most important thing that they've done because it details how reporting on trans communities isn't just about getting pronouns right. And I think for a lot of you know cis journalists, they think, oh, I've got the pronouns right, or I commissioned a trans writer. Look at me, I'm doing, I'm doing the thing. But it talks a lot about how we need to avoid these like very harmful tropes and trends. And one of them is the entire argument that that Triff piece is based on, talking about, again, like those specters of men invading women's spaces. And even just a cursory glance at that by anybody in the decision-making chain, this piece wouldn't have gotten published because it outlines very clearly why this is wrong. Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with those kind of like alarming tropes from like Quillette pieces. It's like this weird... I don't know, fixation or fetishization of like the John K types that like women's shelters are filled with these scenarios. And I don't know, you feel like if Jim Brown had been a bit more familiar with the discourse or, or, or had spoken to one of those colleagues before publishing the piece then problems could have been avoided. But then we get to the CTV piece. This one is a bit, a bit more complicated for me. Anyhow, the headline of the web version, dramatic increase in children and youth seeking gender treatments has some experts alarmed. The construction of this, that this increases, it's dramatic. Uh, There's an insinuation that it's a bad thing. And then some experts are alarmed as like classic journalist weasel words. The the framing there is problematic. But this was a headline for a web take on a W5 TV story. 
medical treatment for transgender children and youth has become a political and medical minefield in Canada and around the world. Danielle Hamamjan investigates why some see the treatments as life-saving, but others worry it's all going too fast and causing irreversible damage to some children, especially girls. If somebody was just clicking and started watching this piece, The Transition on CTV, what they would have seen at the beginning of this, and, and given copious screen time, is a really human portrayal of a young trans person named Kean. And you get the story, and I think it's a pretty classic story at this point, that Kean was assigned the gender of female at birth and did not feel like that was the proper gender and was miserable and struggling and doing self-harm, felt that they were male, and ultimately, with great bravery, came out to their parents about this who were, shocker, supportive. Within six months, there was a new haircut, a new wardrobe, and a life-changing prescription from a children's gender clinic in Ottawa. Then received puberty-blocking intervention, and I believe uh, surgery, and is now thriving as Kean, as a male. It seems to be the kind of story that, as far as I know, trans people have been calling on seeing this play out more because it gives instruction and guidance to parents. But then the piece takes a turn, right? Mm Mm-hmm. As it always does. Here in the UK, their prescription is now so contentious, a court was asked to intervene, triggering a fierce debate about the treatment of children with gender dysphoria. And then we get two other young people, Kira Bell and Sinead Watson, and CTV has to travel to the UK to find them. They tell a different story. They tell stories of being drawn towards transitioning because they were like victims of sexual abuse and wanted to kind of like hide their female sexual identity. And maybe if they turned themselves into men, they would no longer be propositioned or abused. And now they regret it. Now, I am aware of what's problematic in terms of the balancing act that this piece tries to do, that you've got one Kean who is happy with the transition, and then two, Kira and Sinead on the other side, who regret it. Yeah, well, I think the thing to note most strongly about this piece is, again, they went to the UK for this. The producer who produced it is CTV's London correspondent. And I don't think that's an accident, because this is very mirroring a lot of the incredibly dangerous and poorly reported stories coming out of the UK over the last few years in particular around detransition, around access to medical transition for youth uh, in particular, and in the States too. It's dangerous because it's presenting this as a common thing for trans youth. When you look at any survey done of trans folks, tiny, tiny percentages of trans folks regret transitioning, uh, and they most often cite parents as the reason. It comes down to like a minuscule point of a percent of people who detransition because they felt transition was wrong for them. And I, I talk about that in my piece. And I think that presenting this as a common thing that happens is very dangerous because it makes some of our most vulnerable people in trans youth, it can put them in danger. If you know their parents watch this and then they come to them and say, hey, I'm trans, they say, oh, well, I watched that CTV thing and you might regret it. So I'm going to make it harder for you. You know, the medical system, they're going to make it harder for them. You know, it's it's pieces like this and normalizing of narratives like this and normalizing the idea that 
kids regret transition when the actual facts point to the fact that the vast majority of trans people, it's a a life-changing thing. It's a life-saving thing to experience not just a medical transition, but a social transition and being loved and accepted for who you are. To present the idea that it's common to regret that makes that just so much harder for people who are going through that. It's it's irresponsible, frankly. Um, It's it's like, it's, it's shoddy journalism because it's not based anywhere on facts. And there are coordinated efforts, especially in the UK, to push this narrative. And it comes from the trans-exclusionary radical feminist groups or TERFs, as you will say. I don't like the term TERF because I don't think they're feminists if they aren't including trans women in their feminism. I have a bit of a category-like issue with the CTV piece. Like, first of all, I agree that... CTV sets this up, not even balanced, because you've got one person whose life was saved by transitioning and two who regret it. And the statistics tell us that even if you suggested that it was 50-50, you'd be way off. However, when I watched Kira Bell and Sinead Watson, the same way that I watched Kian Olszewski look into the camera and talk about their identity and their gender and their body and the way in which those issues converged with public policy and medical intervention and appealed to me to listen to them and to think about what they were saying and to believe them about what they were telling me. I believed them. What do you think? Should we be hearing them? I mean, I think that there are... Folks who have detransitioned who have spoken very candidly and openly about it, who are not advocating for the opportunity to transition being made more difficult for other youth. And that's that's where I come down on this. It's like, I recognize that people's individual experiences are their individual experiences, etc. But it's a lot different when you're saying like, hey, this didn't work for me. And also it's because it was too easy for me. Therefore, it should be harder for everybody. And at a time when it's not an easy thing, like... You're not going down to the 7-Eleven to pick up your puberty blockers, especially in the UK, God, but also here in Canada, in the US, it's incredibly difficult to transition, just talking medically in the medical system, the amount of doctor's appointments you have to go through, the amount of screening you have to go through. In the UK, they like interrogate you about your history of sexual assault. And that's incredibly traumatic. And the fact that there are people out there who are saying that should be even harder. That's where I think a lot of um, folks, myself included, take a big issue with the transition narratives. And there's people who have done more reporting on this than me. But it's, it's, it's when you're advocating against basic rights for trans people. I'm not saying we can't share detransition narratives, and there are people who have spoken very openly about it. But it's as soon as you start saying, okay, I, what didn't work for me, and it's actually because uh, I think it should be harder for people to access. Um, at a time when Again, it's not easy to access. And that's why I want to stress is I think some people watch these things and they think, oh, just anybody can transition whenever they want. And it's like, it's so hard. I was on a wait list for like four months before I could even see a doctor. And that's in Vancouver. That's like, right. and I'm an adult. That's where I come down with this. And I think that that's one of the ways that this is particularly harmful. Well, I mean, most of what you're saying sounds incredibly reasonable, which is just that like all of that information and context makes for a more informative and real report. I'm still bumping against this idea that like we can hear their voices, we can hear their stories as long as they're not advocating for there to be consequences for somebody else. Because of course, if you flip that, why would a Kian Olszewski or other trans people who want their stories told subject themselves 
to that kind of public scrutiny, and I'm sure that carries consequences, it's because they're advocating. They're advocating, like, I was able to transition, my parents supported me, and I want that for other people, and disagree with their position as we may. That is exactly what Kira Bell and Sinead Watson are doing. Speaking as a journalist, like, their advocacy doesn't exclude them from having a point of view or an experience. And who the hell am I? Like, I know that even for even having this conversation, some people will feel that I I shouldn't even be a part of this conversation. But the role that I can most easily identify with is the role of the parent trying to parse all of this. And I would want to have all of it. I would want to have all the stats. Yes, there are some people who regret it. Uh, They are statistically way smaller than people who don't. And those people who don't, if they don't get it, there are terrible outcomes. Give me all the information. I don't want to be shielded from voices. I don't want to be shielded from information. And I'm not really big on people, you know, being shielded from the public, you know, like the media making those decisions to not include those people. Yeah. And I think that that comes down to the problem of the CTV piece is the way that it's framed. And just the same way as people were saying that in the Jessica Triff piece, she needed to point out the facts of how violence affects trans people or violence by trans people affects cis people. Like the CTV piece is missing the bare facts of how difficult it already is to access these services and how the barriers that are there are in place and there should be less barriers. I want to say, like, I want to be on the record saying that, like, I don't think the system we have now is good, but by normalizing these kind of calls for it to be made even worse, it will get worse. And we've seen that happen in the UK. The The system in the UK is incredibly broken for trans people. And I know close friends of mine who have moved here from the UK and have found a world of a difference in their experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't want Canada to turn out like that. We've seen this narrative before and we've seen these kinds of stories again coming out before and it has directly correlated to policy changes that have hurt trans people and hurt trans kids in particular. And that's something we should be worried about. It's important that we talk about it. And that's why and that's why I'm here, right? Like I think I when I told some friends that I was coming on to do this, they were skeptical because again, you know, trans people should be talking about these issues and 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 you made a good point of questioning if you should be talking about these, but you should be talking about these issues. And mainstream press should be talking about these issues in fulsome ways and and, and listening to trans people because, you know, little outlets like Extra, not that we're super little, can't do it alone. Can I like get into that a little bit with you? Because the idea mm-hmm. uh, and the question as to whether or not to be talking about this, we've been having this conversation in the office like every day. And why is this something that the three pieces that you pointed out, why is this in the air? Why are they talking about it? I've even seen people on Twitter suggesting that there's some sort of like cis journalist back channel where everyone's conspiring to write anti-trans narratives and, and plotting. And to me, I'm like, no, no, no. Well, that is a thing in the U.S., there's a literal group chat in the U.S. Of, I think there's like 400 people on it. And it's Jesse Singles in there and all the folks who have written some of those pieces in the U.S. Um, or been academics who have been really sympathetic to that sort of thing. They literally have a group chat. There is a there is a Jezebel piece that leaked some of the messages from that group chat. And it's like Jesse Single reposting one of his pieces and being like, oh, the trans activists are mad at me again. But like, I think I did a good job. And other people being like, yes, you did. Murk, murk, murk. <laughs> So like it does exist, and so that's what that's like not an idea that Canadians. It's it's not paranoid out it's based, of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the funny thing about that is that like journalists should not like like it actually is itself an, an activist group. It's an activist journalist group. Like, you know, yeah, exactly. Like it's, my read, anyhow, and this isn't with any insider knowledge, is like why are all of the people who are like commissioning stories and commissioning editorials in Canada suddenly really hot on this? It's because of Chappelle. and then it's because of Margaret Atwood. Like these pieces went viral when Margaret Atwood retweeted them, and. I was just intrigued because there's this little detail in your piece where you write about how, like, I guess there's a sense of betrayal. You write about how you actually have a line of Margaret Atwood prose tattooed on your body. 
Yes, when I was a baby student journalist and went to a student journalism conference in Toronto when I was like 18, I was like, oh, I'm going to go get my first tattoo. I'm in Toronto. It's the home of Margaret Atwood, my favorite author. Of course, I'm going to get an Atwood quote on me. And it's a line from one of her poems that says, a word after a word after a word is power, which is the most 18-year-old student journalism thing to get. But it does feel like betrayal. It feels the same kind of betrayal as when J.K. Rowling revealed that she thinks that I shouldn't exist. These are you know people who are childhood heroes. These are people who are respected and who there are audiences for. And it's it, it, it hurts to see them sharing these kinds of things. A word after a word after a word is power. Yep. It's pretty poetic, don't you think? <laughs> Mel, we want people to know things that otherwise uh, might go unnoted. So can you duly note something? Oh, for sure. And because it's the theme of the day and my week, uh, I'm going to talk about some transphobia again, because why not? This bill in Quebec, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, Bill 2 is currently on the docket and it's being called the like most transphobic bill in Quebec's history. Uh, and it basically would put both a sex and gender designation on people's IDs. And you would not be able to change the sex designation unless you had undergone gender affirming surgery. Now, trans advocates, allies, everybody is saying this is real bad. This is the kind of legislation I was talking about earlier about what this media coverage leads towards, because it essentially forces trans people to out themselves. It forces them to carry gender designations or sex designations that do not apply to them. It is dangerous. It is antiquated. It is incredibly bad. I personally am one for just abolishing gender markers on IDs. Why do we need them? There is no reason for them. The answer is not more markers that are really problematic for trans people. Uh, and so I wish I saw a bit more conversation about this outside of Quebec and outside of the queer press. We are covering it at Extra next week, but it's something that I think we should all be talking about and all be very, very, very worried about. I didn't know about that. It's so it's so on purpose. Yeah, it's very targeted. It's very specific. It stipulates that you can only request a sex change on your birth certificate after undergoing gender affirming surgery on your sex organs which is a nasty phrase to say, but I think it, it paints a very vivid picture. And then your doctor has to like confirm your gender for them. And that's just, that's, it's, it's bad. Like this government in Quebec is so like passive aggressive and bitchy in its bigotries. Like it's same with the religious head coverings thing. Like they're just like, no, this isn't, this isn't about anyone in particular. You know, this is just for everybody. Like fuck off with that. Duly noted. I want to duly note a couple of things in social media land. Uh, the Guardian reported that Twitter's algorithm, you know, they, they used to just get tweets in order. You know, whatever whatever the most recent tweet is, that's what you get. And, and then they, they introduced the algorithm where their secret sauce is deciding which tweets you get. Well, it has been revealed that right-wing political content has been favored by the Twitter algorithm. And specifically in Canada, tweets from right-wing politicians received more amplification from the algorithm than those from the left. Right-leaning news organizations were more amplified than those on the left. And generally, politicians' tweets were more amplified by an algorithmic timeline than by the chronological timeline. Then over in Facebook land, it was revealed in the Washington Post that uh, Facebook, you know, we always knew that, like, engagement drives Facebook's algorithm. But it was always, like, by accident. Like, okay, 
people can like a story or they can get angry over a story and it's just the engagement. If people are engaging with it, then it goes up in the newsfeed. Well, actually, if you hit angry, this Facebook post is making me angry, that has five times the value to the algorithm than if you like a piece. So this isn't Facebook just like, oh, we just made a, a machine and oops, angry making divisive content one. No, they fucking did it on purpose. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. I have one more question for you, Mel. I'm asking you a lot of questions today. Shoot. It's rare for me. Usually I just talk, but this time I'm actually asking questions. Progress is possible. <laughs> let it be known. Do you watch Succession? I do. It is my uh, my partner doesn't like it, so it's my special gym show that I'm uh, when I'm doing my stairmaster at the gym. I I, I watch it because it uh, I think has the right tone for that setting. <laughs> I just devour it. It's just delicious. It's like it hits that vein. It's just like ah, I want to watch more of the show of these horrible people. Yeah, I love watching people I hate and have nothing in common with in terms of class, gender, sexuality, race, any of that. But I do just love to watch them destroy each other, both emotionally, physically, mentally. It's it's very satisfying. The only thing better would be if it were to happen in real life. Or maybe that's much worse. I don't know. But it seemed to be happening in real life last weekend. I had been ambiently following the uh, familial dramas of the Rogers family. I know shockingly little, or, or at least I did last week, about the Rogers family. I mean, I worked for them. When I worked for McLean's as a blogger, I was employed by Rogers. And, you know, I, I have the same, like, oh, I hate Rogers customer service. My bills are too high kind of attitude towards Rogers. But, like, I know more about the Murdochs. I know more about Ted Turner. I know more about, like, media titans everywhere else in the world than this Rogers family. 
Anyhow, last weekend, they finally got my attention with this power struggle that's happening when a Rogers kid that I didn't even know existed, Martha Rogers, one of Ted Rogers' daughters, tweets at 3.21 a.m. on October 23rd, since Ed, her brother Ed, and his old boys club, Trump Cabal, can leak countless articles with impunity starting tomorrow, I will tweet every hour on the hour what's actually happening. Wow. I don't care. You'll come for me. You have three weeks straight and we will still get up every time you knock us down. My mother, the co-founder, is 82. What gentleman. We'll spend every penny defending the company, employees, and Ted's wishes. Nothing you can do will deter us. Bring it on. She goes on. She's going to dig up the dirt. I won't bring anything up without full receipts. I've got them from the last 20 years. Who's vulnerable now? I'm guessing Ed's PR crisis firm. Hordes of lawyers and Trump supporters will come for me. Let's go. Holy shit, this is getting good. Uh, so here's Martha Rogers. She's going to be giving us the dirt on Ed and Trump and who the hell knows what. Every hour on the hour, she's promising it on Twitter. I will gladly blow up my life, she says, to stop this, to stop Ed's uh, takeover. He wants to oust the CEO, whatever. I'm in to hear what Martha Rogers has to say about her brother Ed. And then nothing. I'm glued to Twitter the next day to see where this is going to go. But she goes quiet. But then on Monday, front page of the Toronto Star is this incredibly embarrassing story. Edward Rogers fought plans to keep Raptors Masai Ujiri, but was thwarted by Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment head, sources say. Sources say? Wow. If you wanted to absolutely destroy Edward Rogers' reputation in Toronto and in Canada, how about revealing that he was trying to like get rid of Masai Ujiri and in the most offensive kind of borderline racist way, he was like, I don't think you're worth the money we pay you. Like just completely disrespecting the guy. Everybody the next day is like, fuck Edward Rogers. Super embarrassing story about Edward Rogers. But I never got those tweets that Martha was promising. Mel, what do you think happened? Oh gosh. I truly, this story is wild to me as a longtime West Coaster and it's a uh, Toronto churning at the work. But even I know that, you know, I'm not a big basketball person, but even I know that Messiah Jury is like a god in this country after the Raptors won the championship, the trophy, the thing. The thing, um, the big thing, the best thing. The big thing, the big golden yeah. basketball. It, it, it was a big deal. And so the idea of trying, like, I can understand why people now care about this story because it's like, oh, you come for our guy. We're going to have our eyes glued to it. When it comes to the Martha Rogers side of it all, I would assume some uh, PR people, some lawyers probably stepped in and said, you should not do that. Uh, please don't do that uh, if you actually want to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish here. You know, just dangle the idea and then and then let it go is what I would imagine. But again, I'm so much of my imagination of what's happening here is what it would be written as on Succession or a show like that. Uh, I'm imagining like a, a a woman in a strong power suit, you know, calling Martha Rogers at 4 a.m. and being like, Martha, the tweets, we can't, we can't, we can't do it. Yeah. Maybe she's played by Laura Dern. I don't know. But this, this is how I imagined it. And then she says, I want my tweets to be off the hook. Let's get some BoJack writers on this. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> All right. I don't know what the genesis of the Toronto Star story is, but, you know, I can connect to pretty big glowing dots. But, you know, that's not <laughs> I'm just I don't have any information that, that news readers and Twitter readers don't have here. But let me ask you this. As a reporter, have you ever been in a situation where somebody brings you where sources contact you with information and they're obviously trying to use you as a tool for some kind of like agenda, business objective, trying to embarrass an enemy, but it's a damn good story and the information's accurate. Have you ever been in that position? I don't know if I have, though. Again, if you ask the right wing media, the the trans agenda is doing that to me every single day. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't. I don't know if I. I don't know if I have any exact uh, circumstances like that. But a juicy scoop is hard to resist. I've been in these situations before, and it's always a little bit tricky because, look, if somebody's giving you documented evidence or they're giving you, you know, what you need to know to go and find that documented evidence, and it's something that is, like, of public interest, that's, like, obviously a legitimate news story, but the public is not going to get the full story because the things you can't actually report out is, like, maybe the person giving it to you, you know, is giving it to you on background or they're, like, you know, the terms of the conversation are such that, like, there's actually a bigger narrative, which is that, like, yeah, I'm being used to launder. And isn't this a more effective story about Masai Ujiri? Just hypothetically, if this had come out of Martha Rogers' Twitter account, it might not have had the same impact on Edward Rogers reputation as coming from the Toronto Star, who then went out and did the work of journalism and confirmed it. So nothing in this story about Masai Ujiri really directly uh, documents anything about the fight between these siblings. It's really just something that like a, a slice of behind the scenes stuff that you otherwise wouldn't get that has the impact. It has the effect of uh, really, really smearing Edward Rogers' reputation. Mel, I am eating this stuff up about the Rogers family. It's not quite giving me that payoff of I'm not quite getting like in the coverage so far, I'm not getting that succession kind of Jones, like that, that succession payload uh, f- from these stories. Like we're getting interviews with like corporate governance experts and telecom experts. Like it's, it's the personal stuff that I find kind of interesting. Maybe like the best coverage of it was a headline from Bloomberg. Rogers chairman fires board for firing him for firing CEO. Yeah. I think that that headline shows my kind of, take on all of this best, which is that it is wild to think that, you know, one of Canada's largest telecom companies, this thing that looks out over the Raptors and looks out over all of these media brands and literally everything is so subject just to the whims of these like siblings and them just like bickering with each other that like there are just lives and jobs and just so much money at stake and that it all comes down to these these rich siblings bickering. Uh, don't love that, to be honest. Don't love that our world is is structured in that way. Uh, there is something specifically Canadian about these family trusts that, uh, you know, I want to get more into that. We're looking at covering this and trying to figure out how we're going to do it. As I said, I'm not happy with the information we're getting so far. Like, even from a tabloid perspective, like, go for it. You know, like, if this was happening to the Murdochs, we would be at least getting the goods. Instead, it's like, Canadian media is always much more comfortable, like, taking some imperious moralistic tone. Like, there's this piece in the star about how, like, John Tory, with his egregious conflict of interest, because he's secretly been getting $100,000 from the Rogers for his role in this, because he's a member of the family trust. And, uh, you know, he's been taking time off as mayor to do this, and that's not right. All of which is, like, true. But, you know, buried in the piece is this detail, oh, by the way, Another uh, person implicated in this, uh, a director of the corporate board of Rogers, is David Peterson, 
who's also vice chair of Torstar, the company that owns the <laughs> Toronto Star. So it's like, dude, like you can't like take this whole like we're against conflicts of interest when you're like, you know, this is the family compact. This is how Canada works. And I don't know. It's just like something is preventing this from kind of coming into sharp focus. And I want to know exactly what's going on in this family. And I want to know, does it actually affect us as Canadians? Does it affect Canadian media? Yeah. I mean, if there's any big takeaway, it's that Canada really is just three telecom companies in a trench coat. That shortcuts. Mel, thank you for joining me for it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com and I read everything that you send. Mel Woods, where can people find you? Uh, best place is Twitter, where I spend 18 hours of my day, uh, at Into the Mel Woods. Uh, come for more call-outs of transphobic stuff and pictures of my 26-pound cat. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb, with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, now is the time when we need your help the most. Please go to canadaland.com slash join for ad-free versions of our shows and other stuff or click the link in the show notes. What are you even thinking about? Go do it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.